coming up next on the wet fly swing podcast you know i've had guys where they're you know about to shoot the biggest buck of their life and i'll say don't even load one in let's just dry fire on them okay now breathe okay now squeeze and then the next thing i'll say okay let's load one in and do the same thing a lot of times that's a great bit of advice for people is to you know don't do anything fast if you're shaking if you're excited if you're breathing you know just you know you're you're shaking and you know excited just lay there a second calm down that was jay scott dropping a huge tip for your next hunting trip we're going elk hunting today on the wet fly swing podcast hey how's it going today thanks for stopping by the show We've got big giveaways going all this year. You can check out the most recent giveaway at wetflyswing.com slash giveaway. Check it out right now and get a chance to win one of our big trips. Today's episode is sponsored by Bear Vault, the perfect solution to keep your provisions secure while heading into the backcountry. Bear Vault keeps wild adventure going strong all year long, whether you're hunting, fishing, hiking, or just taking a stroll in the backcountry. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash bearvault right now. That's B-E-A-R-V-A-U-L-T to support this podcast in a great solution to protect your stuff. Jay Scott is here to walk us through the step-by-step to elk hunting. We find out where to get started when choosing a hunt. If you have no idea what to do, how to get started, we talk about that. We also find out how to scout, uh, the best ways to scout before your first trip. If you know where you're going, then how do you scout? And then we dig into a little bit on calls, bullets. We touch on a little bit of everything, just enough to get you started in elk hunting. So without further ado, here you go. Jay Scott from the Jay Scott Outdoors podcast. How's it going, Jay? Oh, I'm going great. I'm happy that you had me on. I'm looking forward to having a great conversation. Yeah, yeah, me too. You've got a uh, you've got a great podcast in the hunting space, uh, jscottoutdoors.com. You've got uh, a, a ton of episodes out there. I'm not sure where you're at now. We'll we'll probably talk about that a little bit, um, and then we're going to dig into some on elk hunting because that's a, I think a big struggle for a lot of people. You know, it's a species that a lot of people want to go for, but it's uh, not the easiest one. So, uh, but before we get into all that, talk about how you first got into hunting, and then uh, and then we'll take into the other stuff. You know, um, I was always a kid that, uh, growing up, my grandmother on, on my mother's side, uh, would, uh, get me field and stream magazine, outdoor life magazine, and, you know, ages five, six, seven, eight, you know, just reading the magazine from cover to cover when it would come in. And, um, you know, I was the kid that was, uh, folding the, the corner of the pages to, uh, you know, go back and see articles and tips and things, um, you know, not really having experienced it yet, but it, I felt like by reading those magazines, I was, it was building a passion inside of me to want to get out and hunt and fish. And, um, you know, not too long after, you know, 10, 11, 12, uh, was kind of, you know, always into fishing and, and still am just love fishing, uh, to this day. Uh, and then I started, uh, being able to hunt with some friends of mine, their dad would take me and, um, along with, with, you know, the boys and, uh, just kind of got into it that way and, and shot my first year when I was 15 and, um, you know, just, just really wasn't exposed to it. I would say when I was really young in, in, you know, getting to go, um, but by, you know, 
getting to read those magazines and almost, you know, just build a vision in my head of what it was going to be like out there, I think created a passion for me that, um, you know, has allowed me to this day to, you know, just be energized and fired up about hunting and fishing and, and always having a, a great season to look forward to, whether it be, you know, elk or, or coos deer or Gould's turkey or, you know, fly fishing in the summer. I spend and have for probably the last 25 years, um, you know, all over the Western U.S. And, you know, uh, I have two different rafts. I, I'm, I'm really into fly oh, fishing. Nice. We spent most of, the, most of the summers in Colorado um, the Roaring Fork Valley, the Vail Valley, um, and then just, you know, going to the Green River, traveling around. Um, so fish, fishing is a big part of my life. Uh, hunting is a big part of my life. And, um, you know, it's just something that, that I'm still energized today about, uh, just like I was when I was a little kid. That's a cool breakdown on it in a good way, a good take on it. Yeah. And I didn't know, realize you're uh, that much into fly fish. I, I know your episodes, when you look at it, there's a lot of hunting, right? And obviously hunting is probably a much bigger niche than, than fly fishing or even maybe even fishing. I don't, I'm not sure, but, but no, this is good. So you've been doing it your, you know, a lot of your life, most of your life. And have you had along the way ever, you know, ever take a break from it? Sometimes you hear that from people, you know, like they go into college or something, they take a little break. Have, have you just been going strong the whole time? Yeah, I'm 49. I'll be 50 next year. And, um, you know, one of the fortunate things I feel like in my life um, is that I can basically go from season to season. So, you know, uh, June, July, August, I'm really focused on, you know, fly fishing, moving water, um, you know, streams and rivers. And then I transition into, you know, September into elk hunting. Uh, then we do, uh, desert bighorn sheeps. I'm a guide and outfitter, uh, as well. And we do, uh, desert bighorn sheep hunts. Uh, then we do our Mexico coos deer hunts in January. Um, then we have a little bit of break there in February and March, and then right back at it, uh, do Gould's turkey hunts down in Mexico. Uh, this will be my 27th season doing coos deer hunts in Mexico. It'll be my 13th season doing Gould, Gould's turkey in the spring. And then once those spring turkey hunts are over with, um, I jump right back into fishing. So, um, you know, like this year I've uh, been to the Henry's Fork, been to the Green River several times, um, and then fish, you know, we stay right here in the Roaring Fork Valley um, all summer and, you know, fish the Roaring Fork and the Colorado and the Gunnison and the Eagle and, and all of that. So um, to answer your question, you know, I felt, I feel like if I had to elk hunt 12 months of, out of the year, or if I had to fly fish, you know, 12 months out of the year and not have those different seasons and different, you know, where I can just put, put the fly rods down and focus solely on elk for 30 days and then, you know, put the bugle down and then focus solely on scouting for bighorn sheep. Um, you know, it might get a little bit monotonous. So, um, you know, I, I feel like if people could, kind of categorize whether they're into fly fishing or hunting. If you can kind of focus on those different seasons, it allows you to be fresh uh, for each season and keep that passion and moving forward so you don't burn out because burnout's a real thing. Um, And, you know, I'm kind of an all-in type of guy and, you know, I could see myself, you know, guys say, man, wouldn't it be great if turkeys gobbled all year long or wouldn't it be great if elk bugled all year long? And it's like, well, if they did, you would kind of get used to it and it would kind of be old news. Since the elk only bugle basically 30 days, one month out of the year, 
you know, it's, it's easy to be all in for that month and then, you know, move on to something else. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. And fish species kind of can be that way too. Some of them, right. I mean, trout is a little bit different. It seems like trout in some places you can fish all year, a little bit different, but, uh, but no, yeah, no, this is great. I think, um, you know, I mean, looking at this for you, I'm always interested because, you know, you have this podcast, right? Uh, Jay Scott Outdoors and you do a bunch of stuff there. I'm curious how that came to be because I know podcasting is definitely not an easy thing to do. How did that idea come and when, when did that start up for you? Yeah. So in January of 2015, um, I had just got back from my cooster hunts in Mexico and usually spend about 30 days down there. Um, you know, we take uh, you know, over a hundred people a year down there hunting, uh, for coos deer and, um, Giannis Patelis and Steve Ranella of the meat eater, uh, they've hunted with me, I think seven years, I think this will be their eighth year. Um, and when I got back, they said, Jay, we just recorded a podcast episode. Um, curious if you would listen to it and tell us what you think. So the, I don't know if you're familiar with the meat eater, but, oh, yeah. um, uh, so they sent me the pilot episode. I was like, what's a podcast? And <laughs> they sent it to me and I listened to it and it was fantastic. And, you know, I, I sent them a message back and I said, man, this, this is really cool. And they said, yeah, you know, um, Joe Rogan kind of, they were palling around with Joe Rogan quite a bit then. And, and, um, you know, he, he had started his podcast and, and they said, you know, Joe thinks this is going to be the next big, big thing. And so Giannis was like, Jay, why don't you start a Western hunting and fishing podcast? You know, you love to talk about that kind of stuff. So literally I said, well, what equipment do I need? What, you know, what gear do I need? And, and two weeks later I was actually up and running and, um, I think I'm 815 episodes or something in, into it. And, um, it's just been a huge blessing for me because I, you know, get to have some great guests on the podcast and get to learn, you know, a lot of stuff, uh, about a lot of things that, that I didn't know about. And so I get to learn every episode. Um, I feel like I'm pretty good at asking questions and kind of diving in there and kind of picking things out. And, you know, my podcast, we, we focus a lot on strategy. We focus a lot on tactics. Um, you know, whether it's elk hunting, cooster hunting, sheep hunting, you know, fishing, whatever it may be. I love to kind of get down in the weeds, if you will, and, and talk about, you know, you know, how fast you strip your streamers, you know, or, or, um, you know, on sunny days, what colors you use and, you know, darker days, what color, you know, how do you swing it, you know, different things, you know, with the hunting, you know, talking about, you know, spring turkey tactics and, you know, how to roost turkeys and, and, uh, you know, elk calling. And we really dive in, I get some of the best elk callers in the, in the country, uh, on and talk to them about their strategy for calling in bulls. And so anyway, it's, it, it, it's, it's, something that I've talked about for a long time. It's my wife kind of says, you know, it's no different than hearing me on the phone talking to my buddies. That's and that's right. kind of like how I, you know, like to go about it, um, to keep it, you know, real conversational. And, you know, for a long time I was doing two episodes a week, um, which is a lot, as you know, Dave, yeah. it's, it's, uh, you know, a lot of time I'm a one man band, um, you know, uh, from, from, you know, locating guests and getting them to get oh, yeah. on the podcast, to recording the podcast, to editing the podcast, to, you know, uploading and then, you know, doing the marketing for the podcast. You know, when I started really 
in 15, uh, when I would ask a guest to come on, literally their response was like mine. Well, what's a podcast? This sounds kind of (laughs) hokey. I mean, at the time it was like, you know, it'll just be like a conversation. And they're like, Jay, this is, this, this sounds kind of weird. And now, um, as you know, uh, podcasts are very, you know, prevalent all over the world. And, you know, I think one thing that really helped podcasters out is the fact that, you know, people could listen on their, on their mobile devices. You know, I, I think podcasting had been around for a long time, but you were kind of, they hadn't really figured out, um, how to listen mobily. And now with, you know, Apple podcasts and, you know, Spotify, all the different, you know, platforms where you can just, you know, put your headphones in and and listen, you know, whether you're driving or walking or, you know, walking the dog or hiking or whatever. Um, so it's been really fun to kind of see how, uh, podcasters originally were kind of looked at as these guys, you know, these creepy guys in the basement (laughs) or something. And now it's, you know, pretty much, uh, an accepted way of life and, and people really get their information from podcasts. I agree. I a hundred percent. I think that that's the, you know, it's unique. It's a little bit different than a YouTube video because YouTube, you got to kind of watch it and, you know, blogs, you got to read it. And I mean, audio is just so easy and then you can download. And I hear from people, you know, occasionally they'll be like, man, we download the episode. They're on the river in some remote Canyon listening to an episode of the podcast. Right. And that's, or same for you, you know, right? There's like bugling. I, I can imagine people have listened to yours and had your your bugle episode, right? And, and they're trying to learn how to bugle out in the woods. It's pretty amazing. It's kind of, it's always there. And it's evergreen too, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it's an amazing uh, way to communicate with people. W- one of the funner um, podcast episodes that I did was um, <clears throat> a couple years back, I actually took my equipment and got in a drift boat with my buddy Colby Crosland, uh, at Spinnerfall Guide Service on the Green River. And I, I brought a buddy with me that, that fishes with me a lot. He's in his seventies, uh, MJ Mastelier. And we actually were all mic'd up, all three of us. So it was pretty cool to, um, basically go on a guided trip with Colby being, you know, just the master guide there at the Green River. Um, and we, you know, we talked about fishing, but you know, he'd be like right there, Jay, there's a seam right there, hit that pocket. Okay. You missed it. You know, um, or, you know, there, there's a nice, there's a nice, um, spot coming up, Jay hit that spot. Okay. And I still, to this day, I mean, that's been three or four years. Uh, I get a lot of feedback, how they loved the live kind of atmosphere of it. And we were fishing and talking and telling stories and, you know, catching fish and, um, it, it was a really neat episode for sure. That's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. And I love that you, uh, you noted the meat eater and, and Rogan too. I mean, cause Joe has done, you know, a ton for podcasting and obviously, you know, I mean, there's money oh, he's in it now. paved the way. Yeah. He's paved the way. Right. I mean, he sold his podcast for like a hundred million dollars and it's like, wow, okay. Now that's legit. You know, that's some real, real money. But, uh, and then the meat eater, they're, they're, pretty much killing it as well. When you look at your show and you look at the meat eater, for those that wouldn't know, I mean, how do you, how do you see your show is different from what the meat eater does? It's, it's totally different. Um, the way I look at their podcast is, you know, Steve is a personality in his own. He, he, you know, can carry any, you know, I've been friends with him for a long time. He, you know, you have dinner with him. He can just really carry a room and, and he is a, you know, very dynamic, uh, personality. Um, they, they have a lot of fun on their podcast and there's, you know, they do have, 
mine's more educational and informational. I, I would say mine's a little bit deeper into tactics and strategies and how tos and whys. Um, whereas it seems they kind of, uh, broad stroke and not taking, obviously their podcast is one of the most popular in the country. Um, it's just totally different. Um, you know, they, there's a lot of joking and laughing and, you know, a lot of fun, not that mine isn't, but it's just totally different style. Mine is more really dig down, you know, digging deep in the weeds of how to do certain things, why you're doing certain things at certain times. Um, you know, being an outfitter and a guide for, you know, 25 plus years, um, you know, it, it really helps, uh, I think people to know what they're getting into and know what to expect, uh, when they go on certain trips and, you know, whether it be fishing or hunting, uh, and, and really dive into the mechanics of what we do and how we do it. So, um, you know, it, it's totally different. I would say, um, those guys do a phenomenal job. Uh, I, I would say mine is way less entertaining, but m- way more, you know, how to do things. Yeah. I think, well, I think it's entertaining. It's, that's the cool thing. It's entertaining in a, in a different way. And I always say, you know, the three E's, right. It's like entertain, educate, or emotion, right. And you got those three things on a podcast. And if you could hit, you know, at least you got to hit at least one of them. If you hit two of them, you're doing pretty well. If you hit three of them, it's like you knock it out of the park, right? And and I for think, sure, I think that you probably, I'm sure, do that on some of your shows where you're knocking all three out. But that's a perfect segue into what we're going to get into here today with the elk cutting because we do a lot of the, you know, step by step and getting into some of the deep deep dive as well. And I'm hoping today to dig into elk hunting um, because I know. For me and a lot of people out there, it's one of those, you know, hunts and species that you're just like, oh man, it would be great to get a big elk. And, you know, I, I've had a chance to get a couple of nice elk over the years, but um, I want to take it to like somebody's listening here. Maybe they are on in the Midwest, maybe they're on some place in the country and they want to get into elk hunting and they're say going to, you know, a state that has elk. What, what do you, where do you tell, what, what's the first starting point? Because I mean, you've got the out of state stuff and then you've got people in their own state, but what's the first word of advice? If somebody says, man, I really want to get into elk hunting, what, what's your advice? So if you really want to get into elk hunting, there's several ways you can do it. You can chase some of the over the counter hunts. Um, you know, Colorado jumps out, uh, you know, in the forefront of, of over the counter where you don't have to get drawn. Uh, you can just come buy a tag and go elk hunting. Then there's the, then there's the draw tags where, you know, across the Western States, whether it's Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, um, you know, Montana, Wyoming, there's draw tags where you can actually apply And for every year that you, I'm going to kind of simplify this for every year that you don't draw a tag, you get what's called a bonus point or a preference point, depending on which state. Unfortunately, what's happened is we have a limited supply of elk and a limited supply of elk tags. So that's why the draw is required. But it's also a good thing because if, if every state was over the counter, we would probably not have near the elk that we do have. So one of the challenges is, you know, there's over-the-counter elk hunting in several states, but the quality of elk hunting in over-the-counter states and over-the-counter units, sometimes the elk are very hard to find, sometimes they're very skittish, sometimes it's difficult. There's also another uh, avenue 
other than over-the-counter tags and draw tags, and that's where you can either A, purchase a landowner tag, or B, um, there are some reservations, Indian reservations, all across the country in different states, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, um, Montana, as well as private land where you can purchase and buy a tag. So uh, just like most everything else uh, in, in these days and times, uh, you know, the price of those tags, you know, usually ranges and it's just going up by the day, you know, from from the low end of, say, $7,500 uh, all the way up to, you know, $30,000, $50,000 per hunt. Um, and, and that is because of the limited supply of availability of animals to hunt quality you know, not only quality animals, quality experience. So, you know, to recap, you've got your over-the-counter um, mm-hmm. tags where you just basically come pay, you know, depending on the state, anywhere from, say, 500 to to $1,000, and that gets you a tag, and you can just go hunting, and there are certain areas where it's just wide open, national forest, and, you know, you hike in, pack in, whatever. Uh, then you've got your draw tags where there's areas within a state and units and boundaries within a state that are, they limit the number, say, where the -the over-the-counter unit next door uh, would have, you know, in a season, they'll have 2,200 people hunting it. Maybe the unit next door is a draw unit, and maybe there'll only be 150 tags. The, The challenge with the draw system is a lot of times in some of these states, it's taking anywhere from, you know, 15 to 25 years to draw those tags. just to get a tag um, because of the lack of supply. Then you take the third uh, element, what I was talking about, where you can buy a tag, and whether it be private land tags, landowner tags, people that have big chunks of private property um, that that either get their tags through a landowner system, uh, you can buy tags, and then you also have Indian reservations that also get their own tags and you can, you can, you know, they sell their tags and you can get them that way. So the, the entry into elk hunting, um, is a little more challenging than say deer across the U S you know, deer are pretty much readily available. There's a lot of States where you can just buy a tag and go hunting. Elk isn't quite that way. And you know, it, it the, the, the reality of, of it is I don't see elk hunting getting cheaper, um, I just see it, uh, you know, continuing to, to, to get more expensive. Um, but it is, you know, they are an awesome animal. Uh, I will point out too, that, you know, if you want to archery hunt elk, uh, sometimes those tags are much harder to get than if say you hunt some of these later seasons when they're not bugling, uh, you know, some of these third and fourth seasons, uh, and, and they're not bugling and you're hunting them more like a deer, uh, rather than, you know, hearing them bugle and, you know, getting to interact with them, those tags can be a lot easier to, uh, find a, 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 and purchase. Um, and then, and then there's also, uh, antlerless tags, you know, cow elk tags, and those are much more readily available. And, you know, really for the people that really want to hunt, uh, just strictly for, uh, you know, getting food on the table, antlerless is a great way to go. Um, because in, in most States, those tags are very, pretty easy to get, um, not near as complicated and you don't have to wait as long for the bull tags. So, I mean, 
I don't, I don't want to paint a picture that there's not opportunity out there because there is, there absolutely is. Uh, but I also want to let people know that, you know, if you're getting into the elk hunting game, uh, you know, there's, there's several ways to go. Um, but you need to know that they are highly sought after and, you know, either, you're either going to have to put in for all the States and hope you get, you know, lucky in the draws, uh, go over the counter or get your checkbook out and, and, you know, pay for some quality hunting on private land. That's what it sounds like. And that's a good breakdown to me. It sounds like, you know, the over the counter is just going to be kind of a, kind of a crazy kind of a zoo out there. The, the drawing, the tags. Yeah. If you're doing that, then you probably want to just draw on everywhere. And then hopefully over time, you, you don't have to wait 15 years to get one. And then, but that's, yeah, it's all research. You got to dig into then the landowner reservations, it's pay to play. So <clears throat> you got to have some money and yeah, $50,000. I mean, that's definitely uh, upper level stuff which makes it challenging kind of rules most people out for sure but i mean there's a lot of hunts that you know you can get in that 12 you know let's say 10 to 15 range and have you know unbelievable you know quality experiences um and you know it's it's no different than say a good fishing trip you know you can you can do the diy and 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 go out to the green river or or you know go red fishing in louisiana um, but then you can pay for a guide and, you know, I mean, guides these days, I mean, float trips, uh, on most Western rivers these days are, you know, 650, 700 a day, some, some 750 a day, uh, per boat. Um, you know, and, and I've been wanting to go red fishing or black drum fishing in Louisiana. And, you know, most of those boats are at least a thousand a day. You know, it's, it's just the nature of what we do. Yeah, it's comparable. I mean, and even the bigger, you know, like a trip up to Alaska or wherever Belize, I mean, you're going to pay whatever, 5000 10000 you know, 15000 or more. So when you do these hunts, if you get, how would that work? So if you typically get a guide, say you want to spend, can you spend, say, 10000 and find a good hunting guide to go on an elk trip? Or do you have to kind of pay the 10000 then also with the tag? No, I mean... You know, for ten, you can you can find a nice piece of private ground and a guide and lodging and food and all of that included. Um, absolutely. So that'd be one route, definitely, to go if you want to bypass. Um, but again, I think elk hunting. The way I got into elk hunting, it was through my family, and it was always like a, an annual thing. Like even even when the numbers weren't great, you know, and the hunting wasn't the best, it was still like, okay, we're out there elk hunting. We're out. We're at elk camp. You know, we're doing, we're doing it. It's in the snow. It's great. Um, but I, I slowly got out of it because the area we hunted, you know, it wasn't as good and it just kind of people, guys got older and, and now I'm kind of looking back at it like, you know, it'd be cool to get this going again. And I think that, like you said, you gave a couple of good ways to do it and it's probably just doing a lot of research. Um, where do you, would you recommend to get research? Let's say, you know, somebody wants to start looking around all these Western States. Is there like one site that like breaks down how to do it, how to dig into it all? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, sites like GoHunt.com, um, you can go on there and, and it basically has the draw odds for all of the Western states. Um, and that's, you know, for elk, deer, um, all, you know, sheep, all of the big game animals. You can basically go on there. You can become what's called an insider member um, and you can sign up and that gets you access to maps. Um, you know, they have maps similar to, if you're familiar with like on X maps, they have a real similar, uh, mapping program. It's actually, um, 
very, very similar to that. Uh, has a lot of great mapping qualities, uh, as well as you get these strategy articles, um, you know, from their team on each state and where to apply, how to apply. Um, they give you reminders, so you you know you you get emails that say, hey, don't miss the draw in you know Montana. Hey, the the Wyoming draw is coming up, um, and then they give a lot of over the counter research where you can. Um, within their mapping program, within the insider program, you can actually get on there and you can filter out whether you want to do archery, whether you want to do muzzleloader, you know, early rifle, late rifle. Um, and it gives you the breakdown of success rates, harvest rates, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's probably one of the best resources out there. And do you do a little bit of everything? I mean, what's your, like hunting wise, are you kind of equal archery and rifle or how's that look? You know, so, um, my personal hunting, because I'm an outfitter and a guide, I, you know, I, I done a lot of hunting myself, but my personal hunting has kind of taken a backseat, um, with all of, uh, with all of the, um, I, I like to make people happy and, and put them on great quality hunts. Um, and, uh, my personal hunting kind of takes a backseat and, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate cause I get to go on all the hunts and be right there in the middle of all of it. Um, pulling the trigger myself is kind of taken a backseat and I'm more passionate about, um, helping someone, you know, come and enjoy the experience like, like I've done. And, and, and so, you know, yes, I do hunt, um, myself, but not near as much as I used to say, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Okay. And, and so if I was going to call you up, you know, uh, track you down and say, Hey, I'd love to do a trip. What sort of trip would you recommend? What would that look like if I was going to try to get on with you? Is that, is that possible in the near future or, or, you know, down the line? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do so, so many trips. Um, so I do the, the coos deer in Mexico, um, this will be my 27th season doing coos deer hunts. The coos deer are an amazing animal. They're only found in, uh, Southern Arizona, su- Southern New Mexico and, and, and Northern Mexico, mostly Sonora and Chihuahua. They're a cousin of a Midwest or an Eastern whitetail, uh, but they're much smaller. Their body size is probably a hundred to 110 pounds. Um, and whereas, you know, the Midwest or Eastern deer, you know, can weigh up to, you know, 250, 300 pounds. So they're a much smaller bodied animal, but they live in just some unbelievable mountainous desert terrain, uh, beautiful, beautiful country, um, you know, terrain that they live in. So, you know, you could go on a coos deer hunt. I also do Gould's turkey hunts. Gould's are, uh, the, there's five subspecies of turkeys. Uh, Gould's, uh, is, one that when a lot of times when people go after the Gould's turkey, it's the uh, fifth of the subspecies. There's there's actually an oscillated turkey. We don't do those in in down by Campeche, Mexico. Um, but the Gould's turkey, it's the biggest of the subspecies. Uh, we've been doing those now for 12 seasons. This will be my 13th season this spring. Uh, we do those in northern Chihuahua and northern Sonora. Um, for those turkey hunters out there, Gould's turkeys are amazing. They have a big white band on their tail feathers. They're just absolutely beautiful turkeys. Um, and then, you know, I have uh, desert bighorn sheep hunts uh, in Arizona. Uh, we do those in the month of December. Um, that's a real big passion of mine. And then elk hunting. Uh, I was a 
guide in Arizona on public land for 20 years. Uh, then I spent five years starting in 2017. Uh, I was asked to be a, a hunt manager at a private ranch in Colorado at the Ot 6 Ranch. Um, and I actually transitioned this summer. I'm, I'm headed to another uh, ranch in Montana, a very iconic ranch uh, in Montana, and uh, going to be working up there. Um, but if, if people want to reach out, I can certainly help them on an elk hunt. I have lots of friends in all of the different states and, um, you know, can help them find a hunt, whether it's, you know, a hunt, for whatever price point they're looking at, I can kind of help them with that. And um, like we said, you know, the Go Hunt Insider is a great way if people want to do their own research on over-the-counter units and draw units across the West as well. There you go. And, uh, and all these other species sound amazing too, you know, turkey, deer, bighorn. I mean, these are all just, uh, iconic, you know, like something I, any hunter would probably love to go after. Um, but let's dig in just a, just a touch on elk, because I want to talk about the hunting sure. a little bit and we're not going to go deep. You know, if people want to go deep on elk, they can go to your podcast and search, I'm sure many of the elk hunting episodes and you can dig into it, but you know, I'm just curious. So let's imagine we get a tag you know, say it's in, you know, Colorado or just wherever, one of the Western states, and we're heading there. What's, what's that first step you do in preparation? If you are kind of doing the DIY thing, what, what would you recommend for somebody to kind of get started before you get into the hunt, like to get prepared for it? Yeah, I think the, there's several things. One of the things is you got to get your body really in shape. Um, you know, these elk live at high elevation most of the time, you know, anywhere from say, you know, 5,000 up to obviously, you know, 12, 13,000 feet. Um, but you know, the bread and butter is, you know, that seven, eight, nine, 10,000 foot level. So, you know, a lot of guys coming from say the middle of our country, the Midwest or the East, um, you know, where, where they, they're not used to elevation, you have to be able to acclimate to the elevation. And that's one thing. Uh, but you also have, you know, get your legs good and strong, get your lungs, uh, strong and, and, you know, try and do as much hiking, try and do as much, you know, stairmaster treadmill, you know, all of that kind of stuff, uh, to get your body in shape because, uh, you know, you, you do, it is a physical hunt. Um, you do have to do, you know, quite a bit of hiking, I would say, you know, at least a couple miles a day, if not, you know, up to say, you know, eight to 10 miles a day, uh, in some cases and, and some of it's pretty vertical, um, you know, terrain. So get your body, get your body acclimated and get your body ready. Um, and then a lot of the, scouting I would recommend would be beforehand, you know, get, get maps of your unit, um, get, you know, the, like I talked about the go hunt maps or the onyx, uh, maps, um, so that you know, the boundaries of your unit and then break it down and, uh, where, whatever area you're going to hunt, know the trail systems, uh, know the trail heads, um, know, know that, uh, you know, access points, the ingress and egress access points where you can get into the country. Cause you know, half the battle is being able to navigate around in the country, uh, within the terrain and, you know, get in and get out the easiest way. So I like to really study, uh, Google earth maps or also, you know, get in there and, and, you know, plot the trails out. Uh, a lot of these mapping programs, you can, uh, you know, they have them on there and then you can kind of plot, 
okay, this is where I'm going to camp or I'm, you know, if you're going to camp at a trailhead, you, you know, have access to several different ways in and out. Um, and then also within the units, you know, break down, uh, different areas because say you get there a couple days before the hunt and, you know, there's, you know, 25, uh, camps and vehicles at your trailhead. Well, that's probably going to mean you're going to have quite a bit of pressure and, and, you know, you know, other people around, uh, so you want to have, you know, kind of plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, so that if you're thrown a curveball, uh, you know, and have too much pressure that you can move around and find kind of a sweet spot for, for you to find some animals. That's great. And, and is pressure when you, when you talk about pressure, is it, um, you know, can that be a good thing when you're out there elk hunting? And how would you use pressure to your advantage? Yeah, I mean, so there's been a lot of talk about, you know, guys packing in miles and miles into the backcountry and actually creating more pressure way in the backcountry and sometimes pushing those elk actually back closer to the, you know, the trailheads or the highways. And that happens sometimes. Um, one thing I would say is, you know, if you can get out in the summer and get to your area that you're going to and, you know, take your tent, take all your backpacking gear and, you know, hike around and kind of assess the country and compare it to what you looked at, uh, on your mapping devices and kind of be like, well, that ridge is a lot bigger than what I thought, or, you know, this glassing point isn't, doesn't quite see as much country as I want to see, or, or this terrain is thicker or, um, you know, the, the, the trail is way too easy and it's, you know, too close to the trailhead. And I know people are just going to pound that. That's where summer, summer scouting can really, um, pay off, uh, and spending time in that area. You know, you're looking for sign, you're looking for tracks, you're looking for rubs from the prior year. Um, you know, you're, you're trying to spot elk, um, you know, preparation is huge. Um, and then as you get into it, you know, Dave, uh, just like fishing, I mean, you, yeah. you kind of start to learn areas, you learn where people go, you learn where people don't go. Um, and, and there's so much to it of like, well, yeah, there's six, you know, trucks at the trailhead, but they all go in a mile and a half. But if I can just push in and go four miles, you know, maybe, maybe they don't go that far or you notice that, Hey, everybody pushes into this you know, certain three mile point, but they walk right by, you know, within a mile of the trailhead, you can branch off and go to these different canyons and ridges and they walk right by them. Um, and you know, a lot of that comes with experience of hunting and, you know, as you hunt a unit more and more, you'll get to learn more and more. And when you're out there, so you, you so let's say we find a good spot, you've kind of done a little bit of research, you're out there. Are you, I mean, this probably varies depending on where you're at, but are you doing a lot more kind of sitting, uh, hunting, are you kind of hiking? What's that look like for elk? Is there a bunch of diverse ways to do it? Yeah. I mean, so I'm a caller. Um, I like to call a lot and, 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 you know, call and interact with the elk, especially, you know, in September when they're bugling. Um, but I also like to glass a lot with, you know, high powered binoculars, uh, and spotting scopes and, you know, over the years I've done it so much, I, I try and focus on older age class, more mature animals, bigger animals. And so a lot of times, um, you know, if I can weed out a bunch of animals by looking at them a, a long ways with my binoculars and then find the one that I'm looking for and then make an efficient, you know, strategic plan to go in there and make a good, um, efficient stock on them, 
Um, that's kind of what I'm looking for. A lot of people just kind of willy nilly just chase bugles and, and that's fun. Um, and that's a great, great way to have fun. And, and, and it's a great way to, to get an elk. Um, but kind of as you graduate and, and, you know, harvest more animals and, um, get more experienced, um, most of the guys I know like to harvest more of the mature animals, the older animals. And sometimes that takes, you know, the most efficient way to do that. If, if your unit will allow, as far as terrain is to spot the good one, you know, weed through 10 or 15 of the ones that are younger and smaller bulls spot the big one that you want to go after and then go after that one. Um, you know, you only have so much time during a hunt and if you waste it, um, you know, playing with smaller bulls, uh, a lot of times you'll never get the bigger one. Now, some people listening are like, I just want to get a bull. I don't yeah. care what it is. <laughs> right. and, and that's great. That That's perfectly fine. Um, you know, I would say a good strategy then would be to become proficient at, at calling and understanding, you know, their behavior and, and how they work. Um, shout out to a buddy of mine, Ro, uh, Chris Rowe, Rowe Hunting Resources. He's got a great uh, website and platform that basically talks about elk behavior, um, you know, vocalizations, understanding what vocalizations, what they mean, when to use them, a um, whole bunch of strategy and, and, you know, kind of dive in deep on, on elk behavior. I recommend uh, checking his stuff out, Row Hunting Resources, R-O-R-O-E. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's just getting out there, spending time and understanding, trying to learn what these elk are doing. It's no different than like going to a new river and not having been there and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, when the fish, you know, are they, are they eating emergers? Are they eating nymphs? Okay. I'm starting to see some bugs come off. What are those bugs? Okay. I noticed that there's bugs coming off. There's bugs on the surface, but the trout aren't, you know, they're not rising. And then, oh, I realize, you know, I see their tails. So, and they're kind of suspended. Oh, they're eating emergers. Okay. So they're not eating the dries yet. And then all of a sudden it transitions into, okay, now I'm seeing rise forms and they're actually eating the dries. You know, it's, it's elk hunting is no different. There's kind of just a little bit of getting out there and observing some of that stuff yourself. What is the comparable, you know, to bugling? Because bugling does seem like, you know, a challenge. Uh, it may be a challenge for a lot of people. But it, what's the analogy in fly fishing? What would be, what's as difficult as bugling, learning to bugle in fly fishing? Oh, that's a good question. That's kind of maybe a hard one. I don't know if there's anything. Because is bugling, I mean, how, how hard is that to pick up? You know, you haven't done any of it and you want to get out elk hunting this year. How, how, how much of a chance do you have to get ready for that? Oh, I mean, everybody's different. I mean, some people have that real musical ear where they can hear, you know, whether it's, you know, there's so much great stuff out there on Instagram and YouTube uh, of, of regular, you know, normal everyday bulls bugling and cow elk, you know, talking to, you know, listening to some of these great callers and trying to mimic some of their sounds. I would recommend, um, you know, trying to mimic the elk themselves and then listen to how some of these great callers actually use their call to sound like that. I, I feel like if we try and sound like the human, we're kind of doing it backwards. I think we should try and always sound like the elk themselves. Um, and, and, you know, the more natural sounds you can make, the more 
you know, the, the closer imitation that you can be just like a fly pattern of the, you know, if, if, if your size, you know, if you're using a size 16 and the fish are keyed in on a size 18, you may catch a few fish, but you're not going to really nail it. When you, when you nail the size and color and exact representation, that's when you're going to have more success. It's, there's kind of that parallel with fly fishing. Um, and you know, in fly fishing, that's why I pay so much attention to the bugs themselves. You know, what's on the surface, what's under the surface, what are the fish doing? What time are the fish, you know, and, and it's the same with elk. Like you ask, how hard is it to just pick up a bugle? Well, there's people that I've known that have never, you know, blown an elk call in their life. And within a day or two, they've, they've actually sound pretty good. And go. honestly, there's guys that have been doing it for 20 years that still sound horrible. Yeah, so, right. um, yeah, you know, I go. think a lot of it is, is natural talent. And, and I think a lot of it is also having the ability to make your sounds and have someone kind of assess, Hey, how does this sound? Um, so, you know, if you, ha- if you're fortunate to have a buddy that, that knows elk pretty well and can be like, well, you're really good on this part, but this part needs some work. Um, I think it's always good to have, you know, someone be able to break down and not knocking on you, but give you some constructive, Mm -hmm. um, criticism so that you can get better. And then there's nothing that replaces actually getting out there, uh, and interacting and blowing your call. And well, the elk really like when I make that sound. So I need to do that more in that situation or, I blew that sound and everything went quiet and they shut up and they right. left. Maybe, maybe not do that again. Yeah, there you go. And you mentioned the row hunting is a good uh, site that you can get some information on uh, the, the calling and all different uh, techniques and things like that. Yeah. Row hunting resources. It's a great place. Um, he, he basically goes over all of the cow elk vocalizations, all of the uh, bull elk vocalizations, what they mean, how they sound. Um, he has, uh, you know, uh, uh, elk actually doing the sounds themselves and then he kind of breaks it down and talks about it. Uh, and it, it's, it's really will shorten your learning curve on, Perfect. you know, when to call, how to call and you know, what to sound like. Today's episode is sponsored by Fishhound Expeditions, putting together remote Alaskan wilderness trips for that next trip of a lifetime. This is not your lodge style trip. This is your remote float down the river, uh, hanging out with all the animals, camping, um, just having a good time on the river. Basically, this is the extreme river trip. And fish hounds got to cover mousing, chasing uh, salmon, camping, uh, good drinks, good food. It's all there. And uh, as we've heard before, life is short, so it's time. If you've been thinking about Alaska, this is the trip for you. In a recent episode, Adam shared uh, how he created Fishhound after a lifelong passion and goal to be an outfitter. And I'd say Adam has pretty much knocked it out of the park on this one. If you heard that episode, you can hear the passion and the great trip he's got going. We're heading up there this summer later this summer and we're doing a giveaway also for this trip so if you want to get involved in that you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash fishhound to find out more and to connect with your next amazing alaskan trip that's wetflyswing.com slash fishhound f-i-s-h-h-o-u-n-d okay back to the show 
So the terrain with elk, it sounds like there's probably diversity there too, you know, whether you're hunting a, a thick forest versus a, uh, like a desert, right, plains or something like that. What, what's it look like for you or what type of habitat are you typically hunting for elk? You know, I would say mostly like, um, you know, ponderosa pine, uh, country, uh, you know, stuff that you would find in that, you know, seven to 10,000 feet. Um, you know, it depends on the state too, you know, Arizona's, uh, terrain, you know, I guided in Arizona for 20 years on public land for elk and it, it really is different than say some of the high country of, of Colorado. Is that like desert? It's not desert, but I, there's a lot of sagebrush. Um, so you get, you're shooting or you're looking out way out and sometimes taking long shots on elk out there. Yeah. Um, it can be, you also have a lot of pinion juniper, um, you know, what people call like cedars, um, you know, pinion juniper, uh, shaggy bark juniper where, you know, your trees are, you know, not near as tall as say Ponderosa. Um, but you get kind of these rolling, you know, not necessarily big ridges and big mountains, but more just kind of rolling terrain. It's thick, it's hard to glass. Um, those areas can be good when, you know, the calling is good. You can, you can, you can get in there and, and, you know, kind of sneak up and they can be just on the other side of the tree and they can't see you, but you know, you can hear them. And so that, that terrain is, is sometimes fun to hunt. You know, you get Ponderosa pine where, you know, Ponderosa pines, you know, they, they, the size of the tree vary, but you can kind of see in a linear or horizontal, you know, hundred yards or 150 yards and so can they so sometimes that's hard to sneak in there on elk when you know you don't have that cover where you can move uh, as they're bugling in those ponderosa thickets sometimes it's tough because you know you can see because you know the branches don't really start till above your head and so you know they're walking you can see them they can see you Sometimes it's a little more challenging to hunt in that kind of terrain. And then, you know, you get aspens uh, in, you know, Utah and Colorado. Um, and sometimes those aspen groves can be fun to hunt in, can be thick at times, but run parallel with what you think about when you think about September elk hunting. The aspen trees are be- beautiful. But, and if I was, uh, you know, coming into your podcast, let's just Take it there. You know, we were talking just briefly a little elk here. Um, you know, where do you direct? Because you've got 800 episodes, right? All these episodes. How did, if somebody comes to your site or your podcast, how, how would they get a step-by-step to learn more about elk from your site? What would you recommend? One of the challenges, um, I get this a lot. Jay, I want to come and just learn about coos or Jay, I want to just learn about your elk episodes. I have yet to find a categorical um, you know, platform that actually can help me categorize. So unfortunately you would just have to either scroll back or scroll forwards and just go to the episodes that, um, are on elk and any of the ones that are on elk, I'll have elk in the, in the title. And, you know, there's probably a hundred episodes on elk at least. Uh, and, and, you know, just listen to them. Um, talking to a lot of the best outfitters and guides, elk callers, um, you know, in the world. And much like your podcast, you know, I was listening to an episode last night with Mike Lawson on the Green, oh, yeah. uh, Green River. You know, you, you're taking, you know, whether it be geographic areas, whether it be rivers, uh, whether it be certain, you know, brown trout, rainbow trout, you know, whatever it may be, um, 
just, just, you know, awesome. You know, the, I just started the episode with Mike Lawson, but, you know, having fished the Henry's fork, he's someone that, you know, he's, he's an icon, you know, he's been there born and raised. That's his, you know, he still lives on the same river that he, he grew up fishing as a kid. Um, you know, it's just, you can get so much information from podcasts, especially when you start, you know, diving specifically into, you know, that area. You answered my own question right there. And that's how I do it too. Yeah. I mean, I try to, you know, there's sometimes you kind of go a little broad, but sometimes just like the States, I'm doing this little thing where it's kind of like, I just did one last week where it was like fly fishing, Virginia, you know what I mean? Like there's 50 States and it's hard to be a general, but I'm trying to have some general episodes where somebody can go there and get a broad spectrum on each state. But then I'm also digging into, yeah, there's these rivers, there's these species specifically. I might have a targeted episode just on, you know, topwater bass flies uh, for, you know, for yeah. smallmouth, something like that, right? And you, you're the same way. You just go into it each episode and and you have a guest and you maybe look at their specialty and dig into it. Yeah, and, and or, I mean, we may be specifically talking about wallows, um, you know, where elk come to, you know. Oh, yeah lay down and roll around or we might be talking about elk rubs and what makes an elk rub and why do they do it and you know all of the things with elk rubs or we might talk about you know uh, bugling specific you know young bulls uh, versus you know sounding like older bulls or we may be talking about you know shot placement for archers um, and you know some of the different uh, you know diving into when you hit a bull in a certain spot, you know, your, your recovery rate and, um, you know, it's better to hit them here than there. And, um, you, you know, and then a lot of strategies of like how to actually call a bull when, it, when a bull doesn't answer back, what do you do when a bull's bugling his guts out? You know, what do you do? Um, you know, when you have four or five bulls bugling, which one do you choose to go after first? Um, you know, so a, a, a lot of what I do is the same thing, pick a specific topic. And then sometimes it's just get a guest on and talk to them in general, all about elk hunting or all about cooster hunting or, you know, sheep hunting or whatever it may be. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's good. I think like today is a good example. You know, I was kind of thinking about digging, you know, trying to deep dive into elk, but, you know, realizing that there's just, it's so deep, you know what I mean? That you can't even almost do it justice. So it's, it's more, I think going to be kind of a broader uh, episode, which is great because I think it's more even providing resources. So now we have a couple more resources to dig into. Um, I want to turn a little bit and have a few other questions I wanted to ask you. Some are related to elk, some are some other things. And gear is another big one, right? I mean, obviously rifle, it's like the fly rod. You, you got you to gotta have the right uh, tool for the job. With elk hunting, I mean, how many, are there just a bunch of great rifles, rounds for elk hunting? What, would you, what do you think is a real good round for, for elk? You know, I, I get asked this question a lot. Um, and I would say, you know, a 270s probably killed more elk than any, any, any rifle out there. And people, that's kind of the response is, oh, wow. But for a long time, you know, a 270 was just basically your all around, you know, same with like a 30-06. What about a 308? 308s, you know, that's been a great sniper rifle for a long time. It's, it's a slower, uh, a, a, a slower, uh, round, but it's very, very accurate. You know, some of the m most accurate snipers in the world have used 308s forever. But, you know, I would say with all of the technology these days, you know, uh, the 300 caliber rifle, um, if you can stay in that 300 caliber 
you know, range, I think you're probably going to be best, best off for elk, you know, elk are a big animal. Um, you need to have a, a good bullet that is going to have plenty of knockdown power. Um, but you know, in general, you know, if you, if you stick with that 300 caliber and, and there's so many different, you know, within the 300 caliber, but if you stick with that, uh, I think that's probably going to be your best all around, uh, elk yeah, that's cartridge. It. That's it. Okay. And, and what about in changing it here a little bit, like for deer, if you're deer hunting and say it's for maybe, you know, your kids, your kid, or your, even your wife or something like that, what, what's a good rifle? Is that still, I mean, still the same, the 270 or 30-06? No, I would say you can go down, to, you know, the old standby was, you know, the old 243s um, for, for women and children. They've killed a lot of deer. Um, but, you know, a great caliber now is like that 6.5 uh, PRC or 6.5 Creedmoor. Um, you know, kids can shoot them. Women can shoot them. They have very little recoil. It's, it's, it's a great uh, caliber. Um, you know, the 257 Weatherby. Um, you know, 25-06, um, you know, just a smaller, uh, that when you're getting women and children involved, uh, in rifle shooting, I think the worst thing you could do is shoot the big calibers, um, you know, that they kick a lot and, or that make a ton of noise. Cause you start getting, you know, right off the bat, get flinching. If you're getting a kid into it, you know, start with the 22 and, and, you know, just do a lot of 22 shooting and then maybe go up to the, you know, 22, 250 or two, 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 three, or, you know, something like that. And then it will be nothing for them to transition up to a 6.5, um, you know, and, and, but the last thing you want to do is start out someone that's never shot with a 300, you know, 300 caliber. Yeah. Seven, seven MM Magnum or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it, they're very loud. They kick like that's not, you want to, you kind of want to go the opposite, uh, way and start them where it doesn't kick. It's not that loud. Um, you know, it's not much of a shock to your system to, to pull the trigger and shoot. Is there still a, uh, like the bullet shortage? Are you still seeing that out there? Is that a thing that's, that's going on? Oh, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, the supply is, um, demand is very high, but supply is very, very limited. And so, yeah, that's the thing that people need to understand, whether you're elk hunting or deer hunting this fall, make sure you've got your bullets now because, um, good chance every day that goes by there's, there's going to be less of them for sure. That's, that's it. So that's pretty much, that's the tip there is just get them as soon as you can just get them ahead. So you have them way ahead. Yeah. And buy them and have plenty of supply for next year as well, because it's, it, it's amazing how the, the, uh, lack of supply, it's just created a giant shortage, um, out there for sure. Good. Okay. And, and on your podcast, I'm getting, you might not even know this with 800. Well, first of all, in the 800 episodes, so you were doing two for a while. I mean, what's your cadence look like now? What, what, what do you do there? To be honest with you, um, this summer I've taken a little bit of a breather, um, and I kind of go through periods where I did, I don't know, eight or 10 in June. I haven't done that many in July. I'm about to kick off some here in August as hunting season gets closer. Um, but you know, since 2015 being, you know, seven years into it, um, you know, I was just doing, uh, two episodes a week, you know, just got to be so much, I've, you know, gotten busy with lots of other things. My cadence isn't quite as, as good as it was. Yeah. So you're still going, but you typically, if somebody was going to subscribe right now, 
to your episode, they would probably be seeing a, a new episode here, uh, potentially the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be releasing a bunch here in August. Um, and you know, there's, there's plenty that they can go back through 815 episodes and, you know, over the last seven seasons, uh, and, you know, from, from every topic, you know, involved in hunting and, and a bunch in fishing as well. What, what do you think? Do you have any episode? Do you have one, you know, that's just like your biggest, or do you have any that are just always resonate well with people? Um, I mean, that's kind of a tough one. I guess it, yeah. I mean, I guess it just depends on what you're looking for. Who is your best, like, because you had the meat eater, you've had some people, you had, um, I think you had Donald uh, Trump Jr. I mean, some of those episodes that you have, do you see a big uh, blast of, you know, when you have a big guest like that on? Yeah, but to be honest with you, um, this kind of sounds weird. I really don't pay much attention to the stats or I, I, I judge my podcast based on feedback that I get through my Instagram account or through my emails. Um, I've never really been, uh, one to focus too much on the numbers and popularity. I've never really, you know, I, I I never started doing my podcast to try and make money or monetize it. That's not the reason that I started it. Although I would say after five episodes, I, you know, had sponsors can't come, you know, this was back when it was just starting podcasts were new. And, um, so I've been very, very fortunate with the, with the podcast sponsors that I have. And most of them have been with me the entire time. And, um, it's, it's been a really good run, but I've tried to kind of stay away from, you, you know, my personality is not much to have, how do I get into this? Yeah. So I feel like there's people that do podcasts and they're trying to do the shock and awe. They're right. trying to, you know, whatever yeah. the hot button of the week is and try and do stuff for popularity and to try and get listeners and to build uh, a, a, a listenership and, and, tr- you know, try and do controversial subjects. And that's just never really been my style. I would rather just talk about details, um, and try and help people to be better at what they do, um, rather than focus on trying to be popular, trying to be, uh, you know, the latest and greatest and, and, and you know, um, in the forefront in, you know, in, in the eye and try and it's just not really my style. Yeah. I love that. You know, I, and I agree. I think the, it's, uh, you know, and that's just the social media world we're in, right? You see some of this stuff out there. It's just kind of crazy. And you're like, Oh yeah. I, I really try and focus on information and education and trying to help people become better. And, you know, Bill Winky, um, he's, uh, was, started midwestwhitetail.com he's a good friend of mine been friends with him for years he's you know one of the biggest outdoor hunting writers in the country and um very very respected you know a long time ago probably 2010 he's like jay there's people that will come and go and they'll be flashing the pans they'll be entertainers they'll be trying to be fancy and you know he said but if you can educate and you can inform um you'll be around for a long long time so i've i've really tried to take that to heart um, you know, there's probably not a day that goes by that I don't get an email or an Instagram message from someone saying, Hey, I listened to your podcast religiously. You helped me kill this coos deer. If I wouldn't have listened, you know, I wouldn't have had the success that I had, or, 
you know, hey, Jay, you shortened the learning curve on my elk hunt. I was successful on my first hunt. You know, I listened to those 15 guests that you had on talking about elk hunting uh, before the hunts, and um, I wouldn't have gotten this elk without you. You know, that's how I judge the success of what I do, um, not by the sheer numbers. I, I, I would rather have, you know, 100 people send me a message saying how much, uh, you know, success they've had because of what they've learned rather than, you know, 10,000 people that listen and never send me a response or, Hey, I learned this from you. Yeah. I love that. No, that's a, that's a great take on it. It's not to say that we would, we all want to, um, yeah, grow, you, you want to grow your have, show. You want to grow and have a popular thing, but that if that's the focus, um, I feel like you'll fall short. Yeah. I love that. Perfect. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, growth and we're always trying to obviously, you know, grow the show. We have sponsors on things like that. But at the end of the day, it's really about when I go into an episode, it's what am I curious about? You know, I, I would never do an episode that I didn't wasn't curious myself. So I think that's always a good way to start out um, for anybody. Absolutely. Yeah, anybody. So, so good. This is. Let, let's talk just quickly about your uh, your tech because I know you started out with um, maybe you know things differently at the beginning. But um, what does it look like? So you do these episodes. Are you doing this uh, mostly in kind of a studio setting, or are you mixing up doing some stuff outdoors? So yeah, mostly some wherever I'm at, um, you know, I'm constantly traveling around our home base is in Arizona. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm gone most all of the year, you know, chasing hunting and fishing destinations. Um, and so a lot of it is just wherever I'm at in my living room or, um, you know, sometimes my wife locks me in a, in a room and, and, uh, shuts the door and, and off I go. Um, and I laugh half the, you know, half the episodes I may be in my boxer shorts, you yep. know, I'm, it's very, <laughs> very informal and it, it's just, um, you know, talking about things that we love is, is easy to do. Um, and I've always tried to kind of have that informal, uh, way and not get too fancy. And, you know, I think, I think that resonates with people being genuine and, 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 you know, being able to be real and, and talk specifics, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the beauty of, uh, podcasting is, you, you know, like this, uh, you know, this morning, um, may go fishing later today, but you can do it on your own schedule and, um, you know, you get an hour or so set aside and can have a conversation anywhere. You mentioned, uh, when you're talking about, I love your take on it too, about doing the show and, and why you do it. You know, I'm curious because it seems like the the scoring system, you know, this is kind of turning the table a little bit, but size of animals, I don't quite understand how all that works. And that's an interesting thing, too, because, you know, um, it's kind of weird, right? You go for the biggest animal or the biggest bull or but some people just want to get some meat. What, what's first describe the scoring system? Is that a very technical thing to understand? Well, before I answer that, let me. Um, so. As an outfitter over the years, um, it's very important to me, and it's same with fishing. You know, how many times have you gone down a river and had a great day and just, you know, unbelievable fishing and let's say unbelievable catching and, you know, you've caught, you know, you've floated down and you've just caught the fire out of them and it's just been incredible and, you know, caught, you know, let's say 25, 30 fish. You're not counting, but, you know, you're just catching them, just catching them and, you know, they're, they're, you know, 16 to 18 inches and it's just been phenomenal. And then you get to the ramp and, 
you know, there's some guy over there going, oh, I caught eight fish over 24 right. and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, so one of the reasons that I'm um, so adamant about being accurate with field judging, and I talk about it so much on my podcast and talk about it on my Instagram, I've, is to be accurate and to to be credible so that if you know, you're hunting and, and you say, Hey, I saw a 300 inch elk or a 350 inch elk. I try and provide a lot of the information so that people can be accurate with their buddies, um, and, and be able to talk and say, man, I saw a great bull. He looked like he was like 330 inches. And for that area, that might be a giant bull. Um, and sometimes I've taken some criticism for someone that is basically putting a precedence of what something scores over the experience, over the you know quality of hunt. I do it more from a standpoint of trying to help people learn what they're looking at because as you uh, progress as a hunter, sometimes you know you shoot four or five bucks and then you're like, well, I'd like to get a little bit bigger one, or I'd like to shoot, an, you know, a, another animal that's that's a little bit bigger. And so, what am I looking at, and why does that one score more than the other? So, you know, whether it's bighorn sheep or coos deer or elk, I just want people to be able to take into the field some uh, strategies of how to break down and categorize these animals, so that when they're talking to their buddies. They can be as informative as possible as to, you know, I saw several five points. I saw some six point bulls. Well, how big a bulls? Well, I saw one that was probably in the 300 inch class, one that was in the 320 inch class and, you know, one that was in the 350 inch class. And then, um, you know, and I get a lot of great positive feedback from people that, that watch my stuff on Instagram or listen to the podcast in that they're able to then discuss with their buddies, you know, and have a good conversation about what they saw. And, and, you know, they're saying, well, I really want a bull over 330 inches. Well, Jay says that, you know, we need this, we need this, we need this for a bull to be that big. That's the feedback that I, that I love getting, um, how people have been able to, you know, I shot my personal best bull and, you know, he's 325 inches. Thank you, uh, f- you know, for pointing out that if, if points look straight, uh, they're, they're normally shorter than the ones that actually have curve. If they have curve, that means inches, um, you know, or spacing between the points on the main beam. Uh, if your points are stacked on the main beam closer, that usually means that your main beams are shorter. So you want to look for those points or those the, the distance between the points spaced out, um, you know, and then a lot of the anatomical features of, you know, from the tip of an elk's nose to the, to the burr, uh, of, of the antler is, you know, 16 inches or, you know, whatever it may be, they can take those into the field and actually, uh, be able to speak intelligently about what, you know, what they're seeing. And then that inch spacing, what is the, the 320 is the inches between, where is that on the elk? 
you know, the elk obviously have two antlers and each main beam is scored and it's scored on the outer edge of the main beam. What I try and point out is, you know, the first and second points generally come out of the antler pretty close to each other, but then you want from that second point going up the main beam to where the third point comes out, you want to see some space there. And then between the third and fourth, you want to see some space there. And people ask me, well, how much space? Well, I can't necessarily tell you space, but I can show you on my Instagram a picture and say, look how this bull, when you look from the side angle, look how on the beam itself, the points, there's not very much space between, but look at this other bull, how all of a sudden there's, you know, four, five, six inches more between points than the other. Well, what that's going to translate to is your main beam is actually going to be longer. Well, what does the main beam longer have anything to do well a longer main beam you're going to get more inches so you know guys that are not interested in in scoring or inches it it's fine you can just fast forward and not pay attention but people really want to you know whether it be mule deer or coos deer or antelope or bighorn sheep or elk it seems especially in the west that that people well i shouldn't say that the, you know the midwest guys they want they talk about their bucks and you know how big you know it's a it's a six pointer or an eight pointer or a 10 pointer or a 12 pointer but then they're talking about you know the main beams are 24 or the main beams are 26 or the main beams are 18 um you know it's it's uh go back to the fishing analogy i mean it's just like when you have buddies, you, you know, people that when they tell you they caught a 22 inch brown trout, well, you know, that that particular person, it's probably an 18 inch brown trout. Then there's people that, you know, when they say they caught a 22 inch brown trout, you know, it's a 22 inch brown trout. You know, it's, it's trying to be accurate and not, you know, have Pinocchio nose. And if you take that 320, so break down where, where those come from, where, where on the, like, if you just measure what is 320 inches. Okay. So, um, for scoring on a bull elk, you basically score each one of the points. So your first point, your second point, your third point, your fourth point, and your fifth point. Normally a, a bull elk has a six by six frame, but they have five points. And then the tip of the main beam is what people often refer to as a sixth point, yeah. right? Then you have your main beam length. So each beam, generally, for good rule of thumb, those are each 50 inches. Then you have your spread credit. Spread credit um, goes from the inside of the main beam to the other inside of the main beam in a, in, a, in a perpendicular line. So you don't hold your tape at an angle. It's straight across. Uh, and then you have your mass measurements. Your mass measurements um, are between the G1 and the G2, which is G1 is the first point and the second point. So you're between your first and second point, your second and third point, your third and fourth point, and your fourth and fifth point. So you have four mass measurements per side. Um, and so that's what makes up a score. So you have points, main beam, mass, and spread. And that's where you get you know, your 280, your 300, your 320, whatever that, whatever all of those total up to, that's what comes that's cool. up. So for instance, say, um, you have 150 inches on one antler, 150 inches when you add up the points, the main beam, uh, and the mass, 
And then all you have to do then is add in your spread. Let's say the bowl is 36 inches from inside to inside. So you'd have 150, 150, that's 300, and then 36 inches. So it'd be a 336-inch bowl. Gotcha. Yeah, so it's definitely detailed. So similar to, yeah, you measure a fish, there's some calculations, formulas. Exactly. Like the tarpon fishermen, you know, for the records, uh, you know, in some of these tournaments, Um, you know, they measure the length, they measure the girth and then they times it by a formula and that's what they get. And that's how they judge a lot of these, um, you know, like the holly or golden fly or the, uh, you know, all the tarpon tournaments. Oh, the tarpon. Yeah. Yeah. Tournaments for sure. Yeah. Nice. Well, we're, we're going to get out here pretty quick. I, um, I want to touch gear as always, uh, I'm always kind of interested in the gear, right? Cause then I'm sure you have a lot of different gear you use. What, what, when you think about it, and we've been talking a little bit about elk today, but what are some of the items that are kind of must have you're out there in the field? I'm not sure. Are you, you know, you can talk binoculars, tripods, kind of your rifle. Give us a little. For a, elk yeah. hunting specifically? Yeah. Let's talk elk hunting. Well, for me, I like to have a good pair of binoculars. So I always have a 10 power pair of binoculars around my neck. You know, there's, uh, I like Swarovski optics. Uh, they're made in Austria, uh, phenomenal, phenomenal binoculars. Um, usually have a pair of 10 power binocular around my neck. You know, now they're making them with rangefinder capability, uh, within the rangefinder. So you can, you, you know, you can shoot your yardage. Um, then I also like to have a uh, in my backpack, I like to have a good pair of, say, 15 power binoculars, especially if I'm hunting in areas where I can sit down and look across a canyon, look across a valley, and look a long ways. So not a not a spotting scope. Well, and then I also have a spotting scope as well. If I'm <laughs> hunting the thicker timber, a lot of times I'm just carrying my 10 power binoculars around my neck and I don't carry a spotting scope. Um, but, you know, the spotting scopes, I like the 95 millimeters uh, Swarovski uh, 30 to 70 eyepiece, the STX. Um, that's phenomenal. That's what I use for my elk and my mule deer and coos and, um, my bighorn sheep, all of my long range stuff. And then, um, it's great these days, um, on our cell phones. Um, you know, now there's, you know, a thing called phone scope where you can basically have this adapter on your phone and put it up to the lens of the spotting scope or your binocular and take videos, um, right on your iPhone. And a lot of the stuff on my Instagram account is, you know, you'll see using a phone scope adapter, um, really easy to use, but then you can capture what you're looking at and then, you know, break down and be like, okay, I've been scouting here for, you know, 15 days and, you know, here's the 27 bull elk that I've seen or whatever it may be. And, you know, look through and be able to categorize. And I think that's hugely important to be able to kind of keep track and record of not only in your mind, but have video or pictures of what you've seen. Um, and all of my hunts, you know, I take a ton of video and I, you know, kind of analyze bucks or bulls or rams or whatever it is. Um, I always seem to have trekking poles. Um, the older I get, the more important trekking poles are for stability, especially when going downhill or side hilling. Um, when I was, you know, when we were all 20 years old, we didn't need them, but the old, you know, I'm 49, um, being able to be stable in the mountains, I feel using trekking poles, um, you know, is a lot less wear and tear on my knees and, you know, on my body. Um, and then a good, good lightweight backpack, um, you know, something that you can carry a lot of gear. Um, it's comfortable. It fits you well. Um, I use a Kuyu backpack, mm-hmm. uh, and then, you know, gear, 
you, you know, as, as fishermen, as sportsmen, fishermen and hunters, uh, over the last, I would say, 15 years, the, the amount of quality technical gear is just, it's mind-blowing. And, and as a consumer, it's so awesome to be able to have, you know, phenomenal fly rods and reels and lines and, you know, all the technology as well as with hunting. You know, you've got all of the, the clothing and gear that's going to keep you warmer, going to keep you drier, uh, going to allow, you know, moisture to wick away from your skin and, and, and keep you, uh, focused. And, 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 you know, the, the less you can worry about some of that stuff, the, the longer you can go, the harder you can go. Um, so that's super important. I use a lot of the Kuyu gear, um, for my clothing, rain gear, uh, et cetera, and staying warm. You know, I, uh, you know, the, the, uh, down technology, the the super down. They're they're now um, making uh, down products that the water repellent uh, that they're they're making where if down gets wet that it still um, crazy. insulates, uh, which is which is awesome. And then a good pair of boots. You know, I I usually rotate several boots. Um, you know, throughout the season and actually day to day and depending on what I'm doing, but having a really good sturdy pair of boots with a, you know, I like a stiff sole boot. Um, and the older I get, it seems like the better the boots, it's more important. You know, back when I was 20, you could basically run around in trail running shoes everywhere. Uh, but I think as you get older, your joints are not as receptive to, you know, side hilling and all of that and carrying large loads. So it's important to have a good pair of boots. What do you like for your boots? What brand do you like? So I like, uh, like a Schnee's, uh, bare tooth. Um, they're out of Montana. I like the, for lighter stuff, like the, Asolo drifters, uh, the lower renegades, um, that kind of, that kind of boot for maybe just the lighter kind of the turkey hunting or even, you know, not as rigorous mountain. But when I get into the mountains, um, you know, carrying loads like doll sheep hunting or, or, you know, elk hunting and steep terrain, uh, you know, the, the, uh, Schnee's bear tooth, uh, or the Schnee's granite. Um, also like the Kuyu rebel K boots, um, for super technical, they're real lightweight boots, synthetic, uh, boot, they dry very quickly. Um, you know, one of the things with a leather boot, sometimes, uh, they don't, they don't dry very, very quickly. So sometimes a synthetic boot is, is better in that regard. Nice. This is good. I love, I love the gear stuff and, and on your pack. So when you're packing, you got your rifle and your Trek poles, where's your rifle? Is it just kind of, uh, on clipped on on your shoulder or how's that look when you got two? Yeah, so Kuyu makes a great rifle sling uh, on your backpack, um, so it's actually attached to the backpack and very easy to get on and off, but it also stays out of your way, especially if you're making a big ascent or descent um, up up to an area to go glassing. Um, it's basically on, on the side of your pack, but it's really easy to get off. Um, and I really like that. And it's, it's really important sometimes to be able to get to the rifle quickly, especially say if you're hunting, you know, in Alaska where you've got a lot of bears or something, you, you don't want to have your rifle where you can't get to it quickly, um, for, you know, protection. If you need to fire off around just to warn, you know, a bear that you're there, 
Um, but Kuyu makes a great product, a uh, great rifle sling that goes right on the pack. That's perfect. And th- this is a kind of another general uh, random one. But so in your rifles there, is there a, uh, a bullet in the chamber on safety or is it not? No, I very rarely, um, I very rarely carry a bullet in the chamber. You know, I, I think it's important to be able to, you know, jack one into the chamber and be ready to go if you need need to. But I just think from a general safety standpoint, um, you know, hiking around and going over logs and you know over fences and and through brush, um, carrying a loaded gun is not a, not a good practice. The safety can get kicked off and. You know, first and foremost, uh, anybody that hunts with me knows safety is number one concern. And, you know, I think carrying a loaded gun is not a good idea. Um, you know, most of the time, uh, I, I tell clients, you know, we're not loading, we're not loading a a bullet into the chamber until literally right before we're going to, we're going to make the shot. Um, now with that being said, it's important to be able to load your gun put a bullet in the chamber and do it quietly. Um, but I just think it's a good practice to never, you know, have bullets in the magazine, but not have bullet in the chamber. Not in the chamber. Perfect. And uh, let's take it out here, the, the 222. This will be a quick little rapid fire here, and we'll, and we'll hop out of here. Um, this is kind of like top tips, uh, tools, and resources, and we probably talked a little bit about this. But let's take it back to Elk just to wrap this up. You know, a couple of elk tips, you know, if somebody's going out there, let's say they got, you know, their hunt, they're all set up, you know, they're out there, we've passed the, and they're on the hunt. What, what do you tell somebody that kind of that day, the day of the hunt? So I think one of the important things, if you have a right-handed shooter is, um, that, that they always understand that let's say it's during the rut and you're going to be calling elk and the elk are going to be coming into the call is that if they're a right-handed shooter that they set up, in other words, if the elk is going to come in at, say, 12 o'clock or, say, 10 o'clock, a little bit to their left, it's important that a right-handed shooter always sets up a little bit gun barrel pointed a little bit to the right of where the elk is going to come from because that allows, if the elk swings more to the right, um, they have the ability to cover all the way back to their left. In other words, if the elk is coming at 12 o'clock and the gun barrel is pointed at 12 o'clock, if that elk moves to the right or moves more to the two or three o'clock position, that hunter actually has to pick up the rifle and move it across their body the opposite way. Whereas you could swing to your left in a much bigger um, you know, almost like 180 degrees. It's the same for, I tell turkey hunters. So always set up, if you're a right-handed shooter, set up a little bit to the right of where you think the elk is going to come into the sight picture. That way you have the ability that if they continue moving right, you're already in front of them. But if they go back left, you can swing across, back across the left side of your body with a lot easier, um, movement. That's number one. Number two is I always tell people that what you see in the videos is, you know, the, the basic situation, the climax of the hunt where everything comes together, but that every day the hunt is not going to be completely action packed. Prepare your mind for kind of a grind, um, prepare your mind for, you know, sometimes it's going to be slow. Sometimes it's going to be a struggle, but that you're ready when things are really happening 
that you're engaged and you know you're into it but it's not always going to be like that so i try and set the stage of like being mentally tough and prepared for you know a sit- every situation that's going to come you're going to get rained on you're going to get cold you know you're going to be physically exerting yourself and there's you know there's going to be challenges along the way and i try and set that so that they're prepared for for what's what's going to happen um, and then the, another thing is, you know, shot placement, um, you know, with a rifle, um, it's very important that you want to basically split that body in half from an up and down, from a vertical standpoint, you want to shoot them about mid body and you want to shoot them depending on the range. You want to shoot them, you know, from the midpoint of the shoulder, say back about, you know, 15 inches so that you've got, you know, the heart and the lungs there, um, and to make a good, you know, center mass, uh, body shot, uh, right behind the shoulder from, you know, the center point of the shoulder back about 15 inches, uh, is, is kind of the sweet spot there and that they need to focus as an elk is coming in once they determine, okay, if the guide or if they're on their own and they know that that's an elk they want to shoot, then they want to really narrow in and focus on the crease of that shoulder and putting that bullet in the right spot. Mm-hmm. And when it's, and when it's moving on you, say, uh, um, I mean, are you, uh, say you got your client. I always try and talk my clients into not taking a moving shot. A moving shot, no matter what the distance, is always a challenge. Always try and wait for that animal to stand. Uh, it's our job as hunters to make as ethically a clean a kill as possible. So a, a moving shot is always a challenge. Uh, I like a standing still animal, and I like to be able to you know, put the bullet exactly where it needs to go. I always like people to be as calm as possible. I like to, you know, help them breathe. You know, if I'm if I'm guiding someone, you know, just tell them, listen, nothing's going to happen fast. We're going to be in total control here. If it doesn't feel right, we're not going to we're not going to pull the trigger. Um, our our job as a hunter is, you know, to make a clean, ethical, quick kill. And, you know, I would rather than you rush a shot or take something that you're not comfortable with or you're just too excited. Let's just not shoot at all. And let's get in another situation. And, you know, part of my job as a guide is to try and keep people calm and help them to perform the best that they possibly can. So, yeah, the, the breathing that, you know, that's obviously that's a big part. Of it. And I'm just thinking, again, as I start to think of my kids, right, eventually getting them into it and teaching them. You know, I, I struggle with some of that stuff early on, you know, the breathing, the shooting. Um, what is that on the breath? Do you, do you recommend, is it like a deep breath and let out, exhale completely or exhale partly? How big of a issue? Uh, you well, know? yeah. 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 So you're talking about the actual shot, but I think even more importantly than that is throughout the whole process, breathing and taking, you know, four or five, six big deep breaths and trying to just relax. Um, the most important thing when you're when you're taking kids or anybody that's hunting i mean i've seen some of the most experienced hunters you know maybe it's the their final sheep of the grand slam and they're just excited and i get the same way you almost have to step in and just say all right let's calm down let's take some deep breaths let's put the crosshairs where you want it you know maybe even not have a bullet in the chamber, maybe even dry fire and just squeeze the trigger. Okay. Now let's put a bullet in. A lot of times that will help people. You know, I've had 
guys where they're, you know, about to shoot the biggest buck of their life. And I'll say, don't even load one in. Let's just dry fire on it. Oh, so wow. let's load, you know, and squeeze it. And so I said, put it right where you, you know, put, put it, put the crossers right where you, okay, now breathe. Okay. Now squeeze. And then the next thing I'll say, okay, let's load one in and do the same thing. A lot of times that's a great bit of advice for people is to, you know, don't do anything fast. If you're shaking, if you're excited, if you're breathing, you know, just, you know, you're, you're shaking and, you know, excited, just lay there a second, calm down, take a bunch of deep breaths and then focus. Um, focusing is, is, you know, getting your mind right is hugely important. And a lot of times, sometimes it takes someone to say, all right, let's calm down. Let's retrace our steps here. Let's go through our process. And then that all of a sudden puts them back at the range where they're just, you know, shooting at a target and everything uh, is, is calm. And the calmer that you can be, the better, most of the time, the better executed shots you can make. Wow. That's, that's awesome advice. And, and something, if you haven't done that, seems like that would be a challenge to you're on an animal and to actually <laughs> dry fire, you know, that's, that's with all the excitement, but I love that advice. I mean, it's no different than like, you know, a, a, a giant redfish or a giant tarpon or, you know, a fish of a lifetime or even a big brown trout, 25 inch brown trout is feeding on dries and you got one shot. You almost have to just be like, okay, just calm down. You've done this a million times. Let's just make it happen. Put it on them. That's exactly right. Yeah. And you have those people, you know, some people that are, well, wrongly on the, you know, on the fishing is that, yeah, you just go up there and you start casting and casting, but really it's like you have one cast to make, you make that one, make it, make it as perfect as you can get it right there. And that's your shot at that amazing fish. Exactly. When I was in New Zealand, I, you know, learned that firsthand, like, you know, you walk for a half mile or three quarter mile until you find a fish and then you find a fish and it's like, he's like, he's in a really tough spot, Jay, you're going to have to make the perfect cast. So you just have to say you could just totally melt and shake in and like here's a you know 30 inch brown that you, you know you've dreamed about your whole life or you can just go i've done this a million times breathe take a couple deep breaths make a great presentation throw it right in there and you know set the hook on them nice well you keep bringing up more questions as as you're talking here and i'll i'll, I'll maybe uh, hold some of these maybe for a later point but uh so, so we're on the tips, tools, and techniques, and you've talked about some tools. You want to throw one more out there for, for elk? You know, um, I think elk hunting, if you're talking about hunting during the peak of the rut, you know, most everyone kind of gravitates towards elk hunting and they want to call elk. I think one of the most important things about calling elk is trying to be as realistic as you possibly can with your cadence, with your tone, and with your sound. And I think the more practice you can do and the more confidence that you can gain uh, with your elk calling, the better off you'll you'll be. But also, um, the more at-bats that you can have and the more time you can spend interacting with the animals through trial and error is going to make you better. So um, don't be afraid to take your shot um, as far as calling to those elk. Um, don't be afraid to, you know, if, if you know that you've practiced, you know, that you sound good, you know, that your cadence and tone, tonal quality is good, you know, interact with those animals and then play off of them. And, you know, as it's going, you'll learn what works really well and what doesn't work as well. 
And but you've got to get to the plate and you've got to take your chances and, and, and go for it and get in the game and, and enjoy it. Are there people out there that are hunting? I mean, what percentage of people do you think are not doing any? They're just hunting elk without doing any calling versus people calling. I think during the rut, everyone likes to have an elk call. I think there's people that just pull out, you know, buy a brand new call three days before they go and blow a couple times and think they're good. And then there's people that practice all year. And then there's, you know, people that practice a couple of months ahead of time. I don't know what the right formula is because it's different for everybody. Um, but like, you know, do you go, do you have a big fly fishing trip planned and you don't cast or anything leading up, you just go and wing it? Or do you go out in the backyard or go to a local pond and, you know, just work on your form and work on your technique? And, you know, everyone has a different level of, you know, how much they want to prepare. Um, but I think in general, uh, there's a lot of elk hunters that, uh, you know, really practice. And then there's a whole segment that, you know, r- don't practice and they wonder why they don't have the success that others do. And, and the final one here is on just resources. You mentioned a few, but for, for elk, what's another good resource if somebody wanted to learn, dig more into what we're talking about, you know, just elk hunting and in general, some of these topics. Well, I think, um, not to plug my own stuff, but, you know, obviously my podcast, Elk Hunting, my Instagram, I have a lot of elk bugling, a lot of cow calling sequences, a lot of field judging and scoring. Um, you know, I mentioned row hunting resources. I mentioned gohunt.com. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, cool publications out there, you know, magazines, uh, that you can get and read articles, uh, from, from guys. And then, there's sometimes there's nothing that beats going into YouTube and just typing in elk hunting or bugling elk or elk calling. And it's amazing these days with the resources we have YouTube and Google being one of them in that you can just go and watch elk videos after elk videos after elk videos on YouTube and hear, you know, good stuff, bad stuff. I mean, but but there's a lot of quality stuff out there and, you know, listening to elk themselves and hearing their cadence and their tonal quality and their volume and, you know, the repetition and, and how they do it is, is huge. So, I mean, YouTube is a fantastic, um, uh, resource. All right, Jay, well, uh, we'll send everybody out to uh, jscottoutdoors.com or jscottoutdoors on Instagram and, um, yeah, any, uh, I guess, uh, I mean, this has been great for me. I think we've kind of kept it high level, which is good. And I appreciate you spending all the time today and, uh, and hope to keep in touch with you moving forward. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on your podcast and thinking of me. And um, I listened to an episode you did with Andy Mill. Andy's a dear oh, yeah. friend of mine. Oh, cool. Uh, he's a dear friend of mine. Him and his son, Nikki, are fantastic. I spend the summer near them here in Aspen, Colorado. And and fish with them a lot. And they're, they're really, really good, amazing casters and fishermen. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I started listening to the Mike Lawson podcast. Um, you're doing a great job and, um, keep it up. It's, it's a lot of fun, um, to hear the passion that you have for it and just encourage, I want to encourage everyone out there, you know, to, um, you know, don't wait to chase some of those things, whether it be elk or, or different animals or a fishing place you want to go. I mean, we're all getting older by the day and, 
Um, there's all the excuses in the world to not go red fishing or black drum fishing or brown trout fishing or, you know, hunting elk or coos or whatever it may be. If, if there's something out there, make it happen. Um, I feel like so many people make excuses to not go on that trip of a lifetime and, uh, ultimately, you know, it, we need to make time and, and sacrifice and, and, you know, make a good discipline for, to be able to pursue the animals, uh, and the adventures, uh, and the experiences that we're looking for. So, you know, don't wait, go out there and get it. Love it. Love it, Jay. All right. Well, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, buddy. So there it is. That's a big one. Elk hunting 101. We are slowly, slowly expanding. We're going to be touching on a few subjects uh, in hunting and fishing and some other subjects as we go. If you have a topic, uh, whether fly fishing or outdoor related, I'd love to hear from you. Dave at wetflyswing.com. And uh, and I will try to put together an episode. Or if you have a guest, maybe there's another podcast you listen to that you love in the outdoor space. I would love to connect with another podcaster that you love as well. We got some good stuff going here uh, as we move in through the summer and start to look at, uh, you know, eventually at a new year coming up. We've got some big stuff coming for you. And this is just uh, priming the pump right now. We're, we're just, we're priming it right now. We're getting it, uh, getting it ready to roll. And, uh, and we're going to have another big year uh, as we approach 2023. I'm excited to be on this journey with you, and I hope that you can connect with me and uh, and share your story. If you haven't talked to me yet, please reach out. Let me know if you've listened to this episode. If you liked this hunting episode, this is a hunting. We haven't done too many. Hunt. In fact, this might be maybe the second one in, uh, in all the years we've been doing this. So, um, so I'd love to hear from you. If you really enjoyed this episode, you want to hear more hunting episodes uh, specifically, Reach out to me, Dave, at Wetfly Swing or on social media, Wetfly Swing, and let me know. Just say, hey, I listened to the Jay Scott episode and I liked it. I liked it, or maybe you didn't like it. You can let me go, let me know either way. And uh, and I'm gonna keep doubling down. So let's do this. I'm gonna get out of here and get on with the next one. Appreciate you supporting this podcast and all the listens, whether you're just beginning or if you've been listening to many, many episodes. I I definitely appreciate every single one. All right. I hope you have a good evening, a good morning, or good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. And I hope to maybe see you online or catch you on the water or in the backcountry.